You're hanging out After Hours with Matt Anderson, presented by Inside the Gamecocks. Good evening, Gamecock Nation. Welcome to the Late Night Gamecock Show. This is episode three of the show, and I'm recording this Monday evening on June 12th, 2023. As always, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt Anderson, and I'm your host for all things Gamecock After Dark. Thank you again for joining me tonight. We have a jam-packed episode tonight where I'll recap the Super Regional this past weekend and talk about what the expectations for Gamecock baseball fans are and should be on a year-in and year-out basis. You know, guys, I really wanted to fit more into this episode tonight, but I promise that Thursday night we'll get into a lot more recruiting news, recapping this past weekend's official visits, and we'll talk about some other recruits that the Gamecocks are in a great position to land. But not to leave you hanging, I did want to mention a few recruits that have visited lately that I feel very confident that they will ultimately become a part of the 2024 class for the Gamecocks. Um, those guys are three-star safety, Caleb Harris. Um, he's a six-foot-one, 190-pounder out of Alabaster, Alabama. The next guy is a three-star linebacker. His name is Fred Johnson. 6'3", 225 pounds. He's out of Norfolk, Virginia. And he's a kid that the Gamecock staff is really excited about. Um, every indication is that he, he will end up being a four-star recruit when it's all said and done. So get excited about Fred Johnson. Um, I think that one could pop sooner rather than later. You have three-star defensive tackle, Namadi Ojiboko. Um, he's a... Six foot four, three hundred and thirty-five pound defensive tackle out of Garner, North Carolina. A really, really big kid, and I feel pretty confident that he'll eventually pull the pull the trigger on a Gamecock commitment here in the near future. Also, three-star running back Matthew Fuller. Um, he's listed at six foot, two hundred ten pounds. He's from Jessup, Georgia. Um, I know that he is somebody that the Gamecock staff feels like can be a banger for them, and it's kind of missing right now. But he also has some long speed to him, so you know. Don't let the banger mentality fool you. The kid, the kid can get out there and he can he can make some stuff happen with his legs and he's got a little shake to him as well. Um, another kid that was um, an official visitor this past weekend, um, six foot one hundred and seventy pound, six foot one hundred and seventy pound punter Mason Love out of um, Riverside, Missouri. He actually went ahead and pulled the trigger on a commitment today. So Gamecocks did get a welcome home from Shane Beamer on Mason Love, in addition to another welcome home that I, I don't think you'll have to wait too long to hear about. So that's where the Gamecocks stand now. However, there are some big names that have visited in the past two weeks that the Gamecocks are firmly in the top two or three for. And and really, I think that of those guys, the Gamecocks have a great shot to end up snagging a few of these in the 2024 recruiting class. And that's not to mention the big recruiting weekend we have coming up June 23rd which is obviously head by, headlined by five-star edge, um, Dylan Stewart. Dylan Stewart's a kid that is at the top of the recruiting board for a lot of teams, You know, notably Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina. Um, those are probably his top three right now, but he is, he is a big name in the college football recruiting world, and it wouldn't shock me if he pushes ultimately, be to, ultimately to be the number one player in the country when it's all said and done. So we have that to look forward to, um, a little bit of a break here um, this weekend. I think the coaches are going to take some some well-earned vacation, spend some time with their families, and, and get back after it 
um, for that June 23rd official visit weekend. And, and I'll have so much to say about that. Um, it's one of the, it's probably going to be one of the biggest weekends of the year for the Gamecocks from a recruiting standpoint. And especially during the off season that this summer, this is the biggest weekend on the Gamecocks calendar. So look forward to that. Um, you know, like I always say, stay, stay plugged into the big spur. We'll bring you breaking news, everything we can from what's happening that weekend. So mark your calendars. It should be a, should be a lot of fun. Um, speaking of Dylan Stewart, you know, I think the Gamecocks have a very, very good shot to land him. I think that the Gamecocks are, are probably in his top two, if not his number one school. So the Gamecocks got to hold on. They got to have a really good recruiting weekend when he comes in for his official visit. And I think you'll probably see him make an unofficial visit later in, later in the year to check out the Gamecocks for a football game. But like I said, um, I'm going to have more episodes in the future where we talk about all of those guys and other names that I didn't, I haven't mentioned so far that are going to pop up on the recruiting season as it progresses. And, and folks, the Gamecocks should feel pretty good about. It, it looks to be a, a strong class in the making. But as always, you can reach me directly one of two ways right now. You can email me at latenightgamecockshow at gmail.com. Again, that's latenightgamecockshow at gmail.com. Or you can reach me on the Big Spur message board. Uh, my username is Matt Anderson. So I'm around there a good portion of the day I'm checking in. If you have any specific questions for me, just let me know, and I'll be happy to answer them there. You can send me a direct message. You can start a thread. Uh, I pop into a number of threads each day, so you can, you can pretty easily find me. But with all of that said, let's get on to the show. All right, Gamecock fans, I know that majority of you were able to watch both of the Super Regional games this past weekend. And while it didn't go the Gamecocks way, I, I think it's my duty to kind of break down each game, talk about what happened, and and let the folks who maybe were listening on the radio didn't see things these, see things live on ESPN. Um, I guess we ended up watching most of the games on ESPNU with all the crazy weather delays. But let's get into a summary of the Super Regional and talk about what happened. So in Game 1, I'm going to give you a quick summary of the baseball game. First inning. Um, Will McGillis hits a home run to start the game. You know, juices are going. Everyone's excited. You know, just an excellent start to the game. Gamecocks got a, a quick lead there. Um, Gamecocks also got another run. Um, Gavin Cassis brought Braylon Wimmer home on a single to center. However, that's where the inning ended. Um, we had two strikeouts in the inning. So the Gamecocks were up 2 nothing going into the bottom of the first. And, you know, Florida responded strongly. Um, Caglione hit a single, and then Rivera hit a home run. He tied the score at 2-2 at the end of the first inning. The second inning, Dylan Brewer hit a single. Will McGillis singles brings home and to bring home Dylan Brewer. Um, Braylon Wimmer doubled, and then Ethan Ethan Petrie was intentionally walked to load the bases, which um, kind of stunk because you know Game Packs had all the momentum. It was a, a, a one-out situation, bases loaded. And Cole Messina grounded into a double play to end the inning. So the Gamecocks kind of squandered a, a pretty big opportunity there to take a commanding lead early in the game. At the end of the second inning, the Gamecocks were up 3-2. to two. Third inning, Gamecocks go 3-up, three 3-down. Three um, Florida got a single, but um, Cur- Curling got caught trying to steal second base. And um, Jack Caglione grounded into a double play. So... Gamecocks up 3-2 after the third inning. Fourth inning, Dylan Brewer grounded out, and Will Tippett and, and McGillis striked out. So I think I might have some of that wrong there. 
Nope. No, that's right. Will McGillis would have come back up in that inning. Um, Florida had three ground outs to make for a quick inning for the Gamecocks. After four, the Gamecocks were up three to two. And the fifth inning, you know, this is kind of where things kind of went kerplunk. And we're going to talk about that in detail later. But Braylon Wimmer reaches base on the throwing area, but gets um, called called out, tagged going to second base. Um, Ethan Petri singled. Colmacina Walk put runners on base, but the team couldn't capitalize on it. Um, Florida followed up that top of the fifth inning with the bottom of the fifth um, run of their own. Chenault hit a home run, um, and that's tied, tied the game up. Sixth inning, um, Gavin Casas grounds out, and despite Michael Braswell hitting a single, the rest of the team fails to make any more hits. Um, Florida, you know, Will Sanders came into the game here in the bottom of the sixth inning. He struck out two batters, but BT Rapole hit a home run, and um, Florida took the lead. Gamecocks, were, I mean, the Gators were up four to three there. Seventh inning, um, Ethan Petrie hits a double, but the Gamecocks couldn't get him in. Florida didn't score in the bottom of the seventh, so Gators led four to three. Eighth inning, Gamecocks had three consecutive outs, and bottom of the bottom of the eighth inning, Rivera walks and Chenault singles to drive in a run. Florida's up five to three. In the ninth inning, um, South South Carolina got a home run from Will McGillis, but the team failed to score any more runs, ending the game with a loss. Um, Florida obviously didn't bat, so the final score was Florida five, Gamecocks four. Not what we wanted there, you know. Not what we wanted when we had a lot of opportunities in that game, especially that second inning. Um, and first things first, the home plate strike zone was all over the place. I think it was extremely hard for batters to adjust on the fly there when the umpire was just calling a lot of pitches. In my estimation, kind of willy nilly, kind of what he saw. Maybe he wasn't picking up the breaking balls, seeing where they were. They were, you know, kind of finishing across the plate. Um, I think both teams got upset at the home plate umpire during the game, but especially South Carolina. Um, both the Gamecock coaches and players were were pretty peeved throughout the game at the home plate's um, strike zone. You know, one thing I always watch for is how the catchers react when they're in the batter's box. Because the catchers are the guys that are seeing pretty much every pitch live when their team's in the field. Um, and I especially watch Cole Messina. Um you know, Cole, whether Gamecocks got some breaks, didn't get some breaks, you know, I, I don't think that I, I would actually ca- characterize the Gamecocks as getting a lot of breaks from that home plate umpire. But Cole Messina looked visibly frustrated numerous times in the batter's box on some pitches that, that he just didn't think were strikes. And when the catcher does that, you kind of know that, you know, the umpire's kind of all over the place. But I, I do think there were two turning points in, in game one. In the top of the second inning with the Gamecocks up 3-2, to two, we talked about it, but Gamecocks had McGillis on third, Wimmer on second with one out. Gators intentionally walked Ethan Petrie to load the bases. And right when the Gamecocks had all of the momentum in the game, Cole Messina grounded into a bases-loaded double play to end the inning. Um, Gamecocks only managed one run out of that top of the second, and it it really did seem to kill a little bit of momentum it didn't really show up in the box score until much later in the game, but it did look like kind of the wind was taken out of the Gamecock sails there after that second inning. What what should have been at least one more run, you know, maybe maybe two, possibly even three if they keep that inning going with the heart of the lineup there because you have 
Messina, you have Cassis, you have LaCroix. I mean, you, you could have done some real damage there. So that was turning point number one. I think that, you know, looking back, Gamecocks are, are probably going to be really disappointed with themselves. It was probably tough to sleep Friday night thinking about that second inning. But the other play that got most of the attention in game one and definitely, I, I think, had a deciding factor in the winner came in the top of the fifth inning. And I'll be honest with you folks, I still I don't know what happened. Um, for those of you who didn't see it, Maybe maybe you're just hearing about it or you kind of heard through the grapevine about what happened. I'll break it all down for you. So Braylon Wimmer reached first on a throwing area by Gator pitcher Brandon Sprout. As the ball went past the Gators' first baseman, you know, Wimmer was clearly going to go to second base. I mean, that's just – that's textbook baseball 101. You know, you learn that in small fry. You know, if, if it's a wild throw to first base, you're going to go to second. And, and Wimmer would have had no problem getting to second base. So the ball sails past um, Jack Caglione, the first baseman for the Florida Gators. And kind of in that moment, he and Braylon Wimmer sort of connect. You know, I'm not going to say that, you know, anything was intentional there, but they definitely kind of connected. You kind of saw Braylon put his arms out in front of him to try and maybe break a fall, you know, kind of, kind of put get like a, a little bit less of an impact with the first baseman. So immediately the first base umpire raised his right hand and pointed in the general area of, you know, the base runner and the first baseman, which usually means some sort of, some sort of interference occurred. And to anybody with eyeballs, it was, it was clear that Braylon Wimmer was interfered with. Um, but the, the first base umpire kind of, Pointed in the direction of both players, he he said something out loud that you know I, I don't I still don't know what he said, but what I can tell you is that as you would expect, you know Braylon started trotting down to to second base. Now I've seen a lot of conversation on the Big Spur where Braylon should have just sprinted to second base. Well, there was a lot of confusion on this place. So I don't really blame Braylon Wimmer too much, um, but you know Braylon went ahead over to second base. And the Gators tagged him, and Wimmer was called out. So um, this kind of put a little bit of a delay in the game because obviously Coach Kingston's pretty upset. Braylon Wimmer's pretty upset because it, it seems pretty clear by Braylon's reaction, both you know emotionally, physically, and vocally, to the umpire that he was not expected to be called out there. He was expected to be at second base. Um, no one seemed to get an, 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 a good explanation on this. Um, I want to give a shout out to um, John Whittle, who was on the Big Spur with me. Um, he had a great post on our message board this week where he talked to a source in the in the industry who talked to some umpires. And the gist of the conversation is that the first base umpire handled the entire situation poorly. And 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 on top of that, the home plate umpire, who you know theoretically has a vantage point of the entire field, should have overruled the first base umpire. At bare minimum, bare minimum, Wimmer should have been safe at first base. And more likely, he should have been awarded second base as he would have easily reached second base safely, you know, based on the results of the play. So you talk about the second inning and you talk about this in the fifth inning. That would have put Braylon Wimmer on second base with no outs. And, you know, who knows what would have happened. You know, at that point in the game, you're, you're probably going to do a sacrifice bunt get Braylon over to third 
and then you're only you have two outs to play with. So you know, a sack fly, you know, something to you know, something on the ground in the infield potentially could have got Braylon Braylon home. But the Gamecocks ended up you know not getting a run there, and to make matters worse, Florida was able to tie the game three three um, in the bottom of the fifth. So. Obviously, we hate it when the umpires, officials, or referees impact a game like this. Um, I've long been a proponent that these these guys being required to answer questions from the media after games like players and coaches do, I don't understand why umpires, referees, and officials don't have to do this because I think that, you know, one, it gives you the opportunity to put some clarity out there, but two, I think it holds you accountable in the public eye. Um you know, I would love to see, and on top of that, I would love to see some kind of statement, um, you know, about what happened. You know, I, I would love to have these guys reprimanded in an official public setting to satisfy, you know, me as a fan, you know, but obviously our coaches and our players. But, you know, you, that doesn't happen very often. In rare circumstances, you will see a league issue a statement about a call in a game. Um, I remember that happening a few times in college basketball this year. I don't know if I've ever seen it in college baseball. But obviously, on the on the professional level, you see this all the time, um, and all the time the the NBA, the NFL, Major League Baseball will come out with an announcement either shortly after the game or the next day that says, "Hey, you know this call was blown, and we're going to handle it internally." Um, and I, I do know that college sports, and especially the tournament level, these umpires get reviewed and penalized with you know loss of future opportunities for blown calls, and I can only imagine that'll be the case for this this umpire in question. But still, at the end of the day, as fans, as players, as coaches, you have to you have to accept a loss. You have to dust yourself off and get ready for the next game. Um, and as fans, we have to move on. You know, dwelling on a loss isn't good for your psyche. Isn't probably isn't good for your family life. You know, you know, I learned an adage a long time ago. I'm not going to let a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds ruin my weekend. Um, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do because I'm that kind of person who. I'm a fanatic, right? I'm a fan. Fan is short for fanatic. You know, we'll talk more about this later. But I expect the Gamecocks to win every game, and I and I am emotionally invested in every Gamecock sporting event that I watch. But you know, going into Game Two, the Gamecocks had their backs against the wall. Um, one of the things that I found out over the weekend that I did not know is that 77% of Super Regionals are won by the team who wins Game One. So. Gamecocks found themselves in a hole going into game two. And with all that being said, let's go ahead and talk about game two. Um, I'm going to do the same thing I did in game one. For those of you that might have missed it, I'm going to do my best to summarize it inning by inning. So Florida started off with three unsuccessful attempts to reach base. Um, South Carolina, Will McGillis, you know, managed a single, but was eventually caught trying to steal third base. Um, score 0-0 at the end of one. Second inning, you know, Florida did tack on two runs there, so it was 2 nothing. Gamecocks just, they had a lot going up against them this particular Saturday because the Florida pitcher, um, uh, Hurston Waldrop, he was just, he was on fire. Um, third inning, neither team managed to score in this inning, so it was still 2 nothing going to the fourth. Same thing in the fourth inning, score was 2 nothing Florida. Fifth inning, you know, Florida tacked on another run to make it 3 nothing Gators. Sixth inning, nothing really happened for either team, you know, 3 nothing. Seventh inning, same thing, you know, 3 nothing. It was just one of those games, like, as I'm, as I'm even looking back through my notes, 
it, it was one of those games where you really just thought there was going to be a way for the Gamecocks to to get that one hit they needed. You know, string together two hits. You know, blast one you know over the wall in the outfield and 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 knock on a crooked number. And it just it just didn't happen. In the eighth inning, Florida tacked on another run. Um, ninth inning, you know, Gamecocks came up to the plate down four nothing in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, Braylon Wimmer was able to get an infield single, but we couldn't convert that convert that into a run and ended that inning without scoring any more runs. So the final was four to nothing. So Gamecocks lose game one, Gamecocks lose game two in a super regional setting. That means that the Gamecocks were eliminated from the NCAA tournament, two wins short of going to Omaha. And as a fan, it's one of those things where it's hard to watch and it's it's almost like watching paint dry when your team is struggling so much against a pitcher that's just, you know, as on fire as I've seen a pitcher in a really, really long time. You know, I, if if you go back, you know, I kind of predicted the Gamecocks were going to win game one, lose game two, and I thought they would find a way to win game three. I thought there was going to be a lot of pressure on Florida in a winner-take-all scenario, and – I thought that the Gamecocks would be able to get it, but get back off the mat after Game Two and and take that take that Game Three and get to Omaha, but it didn't it didn't happen. Um, some days you some days you just run into a buzzsaw, and that was the case for the Gamecocks Saturday in Gainesville. I mean, Hurston Waldrop he, he probably pitched the game of his life, and he went into the ninth inning. He didn't get the complete game, but for all intents and purposes, he did complete that game and he he crushed the Gamecock souls <laughs> honestly um his stuff was electric he had the Gamecocks fooled all day long I think that the longer this game went the more pressure that was put on the Gamecocks and the more confident that Waldrop got I mean I I, I think that you know in sports whether it's you know a quarterback on the gridiron a basketball player on the basketball court or or a pitcher or or batter, but a pitcher on the mound or a batter in the batter's box. Some some days, you know, you're just on fire. You know, you don't feel like anything can go wrong. And you know, the more shots you hit in basketball, the more completed passes you get in football, or you know, the more strikeouts you pile up without giving up any runs. The the more you just get into that zone. And you know, as a former basketball player, I remember sometimes, you know, I could be 20 feet away, 25 feet away, and that hoop still looked like it was five feet wide. Um, I think this was an instance today, or not today, but on Saturday, where Waldrop just kind of felt like he could put the ball where he wanted and he was going to get that call. And, you know, home plate umpires be damned. You know, when somebody's on like that, it's it's kind of hard to call a ball and it's kind of hard to, to get him out of rhythm when he's just on such few pitches. I mean, I think that he ended up with like 112 or 119 pitches, but he was so efficient and so methodical that – you know, sometimes that pitcher just gets the benefit of the doubt, and I think that's what happened. Um, some weird things that happened. The Gators did open the game, um, kind of letting the ball hit the ground in the outfield that should have been caught for the second day in a row. Um, <laughs> I don't know what happened there in the outfield, but, you know, it kind of gave Gamecocks hope, like, okay, maybe they've got some jitters. Maybe maybe Florida's not ready for this game, but that was certainly not the case because, you know, Florida made plays in the field nonstop. I mean, it, I don't know. I can't remember how many hits the Gamecocks got, but I think it was like three or four hits in the entire game. Um, Waldrop had 12 strikeouts. 
Um, just a just a tough game to watch, especially when you know it's potentially the last game of the season. And you know, so many Gamecocks have invested so much blood, sweat, and tears, and and just love for this team this entire season that it makes it hard to go out like that. I mean, you'd almost rather go out in a twelve eleven slugfest where you know you just can, might come up short in that ninth inning. I mean, I don't know what's worse, getting walked off the field or just getting dominated like the Gamecocks did on Saturday. But, you know, it was tough. But one thing I will say is, you know, while the Gamecocks never truly hung their head, I think they they battled the entire game. I don't think there was any give up in them. I just think it was Florida's day. And when it's Florida's day like that, there's not much you can do as a Gamecock. Um, I do want to do a brief season recap. You know, I hope to have, you know, more of a season review here. In the, in the coming weeks, you know, maybe maybe next week we'll get into this when we don't have so much, you know, football recruiting that's going on with official visits and things we need to talk about. But overall, you have to consider that this season was a success. You know, through 40 games of the season, the Gamecocks were easily a top five team in the country. And even if they weren't ranked top five all season long in the rankings, they were clearly playing like a top five team. Got up to got up to as high as number three in the country after their sweep of Florida before all the injuries happened. And, you know, not much better you could have done. So, I mean, this the season was a success. You know, as Gamecocks, we're all going to remember games 41 through, you know, 45, you know, the regular season with, you know, having at least one rain out. So, you know, normally there's 56 games in the college baseball season. So, you know, you look at the last 15 games and, Gamecocks clearly were bitten by the injury bug and, and, and lost some games that they, they really should have won. But, you know, the Gamecocks kind of took a nosedive there, and, and that, that's tough to watch as a fan. As a fan, you would have liked to have seen them, you know, win at least 50% of those games, even with the injuries. And, and the reason is because, you know, even as the 15th overall seed in, you know, the national, in the national seeding, you're still paired up with a number two seed that's going to be the home team most likely in the Super Regional. So the Gamecocks really needed to win about 50%, maybe even less of you know their games from you know game 40 through the end of the regular season, the SEC tournament. And, and they probably would have been still looking at a top eight seed, maybe a top nine seed, top 10, maybe top 12, but... You know, it, that's why that part of the season was so important because it really did torpedo the Gamecocks' chances at a nationals, you know, a top eight national seed, and then it put them in a precarious situation where, you know, it, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been weird to see the Gamecocks, you know, be anywhere in that 14, 15, 16 seed range when you know the tournament seedings were announced, but. You know, it makes it pretty tough when you're going to have to go play one of the top three teams in the country on on their home field. So, you know, if you kind of if you kind of break this season up into, you know, four segments. So, and this isn't going to be equal segments throughout, but you know, through the first forty games of the season, you have to give the Gamecocks players and coaches an, an A plus grade. Um, you know, you talk about like kind of the last eighteen games of the season. You know, lead. You know into the regular season leading into the SEC tournament, I think the only fair grade you can give them is a D. You know, I'm not giving them an F because, you know, injuries did happen. But the Gamecocks lost some games that they, they probably should have won, definitely should have won some of those midweek games. And then you look at, you know, how they fared against some other SEC opponents. You know, you would have liked to see them scratch, you know, you know at least one win a series. And, and a couple of times they didn't do that. So, 
you know, I give them a, a D um, for the that portion of the season. For the regional, I don't know how you don't give the Gamecocks an A plus. I mean, they outscored. I mean, they scored forty one runs over three games and and dominated from start to finish every game they played. So, super regional grade. I think that you know, kind of got to give them a B. I, I know that you know getting losing you know two in a row. You're like, well, Matt, how can you give them a B? Well, I'm I'm looking at game one. Game one easily could have been a Gamecock win. Game two, that was just Florida's day. So I'm going to give them a solid B for the Super Regional. So overall, I think you have to say that this season was a, a B, a B plus, you know, maybe if you grade with a curve. Um, definitely a successful season. And, you know, it was it was back to seeing the, the standards that a lot of Gamecock fans, you know, really expect out of this team. We expect to host a regional. We expect to make a super regional, um, and you know, like we like I've talked about, you know, home field in the NCAA tournament is huge. Um, when you're a team like South Carolina or Florida, you know, whether it's a regional or a super regional, it doesn't matter what team you're playing. You have an instant advantage based on the fans in the stadium, the electricity in the stadium, and and even between teams that are evenly matched. You know, there's an electricity that goes through the stadium where you might be evenly matched, but the fans are going to make a difference. So, like I said, I'm not going to I'm not going to penalize the Gamecocks too much for the Super Regional. You know, they were on the road; they were outscored by Florida by a combined run total of nine to four. Like I said, Gamecocks had chances to get more runs across the board, especially in Game One. Game Two, I don't think there's a team in the country that would have beat Florida that Saturday. So. As I said, I expected the Gamecocks to win two out of three games in in Gainesville. It didn't happen, and it all started with game one. So with all that being said, you know, what should Gamecock, Gamecock fans, players, and coaches expect year in and year out from the Gamecock baseball program? Our fans are passionate about baseball. By far, baseball is the program that we as fans and we as a university when it comes to sports – have had the longest and most consistent amount of national success. We're proud of this team. We're proud of our history. Um, and based on the history of Gamecock baseball, you know, the team, the coaches, and the fans need to embrace expectations. So the way we're going to transition this, you know, from talking about the Super Regionals, I know it was tough. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fun weekend for Gamecocks. It was a frustrating Friday and just a sad and disappointing Saturday. But what I did is I wanted to go back and look at every team that had made the College World Series since the year 2000. Um, in this study, I'm not worrying about this particular season that's going to finish up in Omaha in a couple weeks. Um, by the time I – when I was working on this, a lot of teams hadn't punched their ticket to Omaha yet, so I didn't want to wait to do this podcast to get that information out there. So I, I strictly looked at you know the, the seasons from 2000 to 2022, which was last year, and obviously you have the COVID year where there was no College World Series. But we're going to look at that history here in a minute and you know what that means for the Gamecock program and its fans. But before we move on to – what expectations should be year in and year out for Gamecock baseball. I would like to mention two things first. First thing is the big spur. Um, I'm going to say this probably every episode, but you know, even if you consume all of this podcast, you 
you watch, you listen to the show with JV, JC, and Phil every weekday, you are still not getting the most Gamecock content that you can. Um, I think, you know, the four of us do a really good job of breaking down what we know. We kind of share with you guys what we can say in a public public arena, like like podcasts, like YouTube streams are. But there's so much more, you know, behind the scenes of the Big Spur that, that you're missing out if you're not a member there. So I would encourage you to join the Big Spur. It's $9.99 a month. I know that um, we're constantly running promotions to to get that fee, you know, down from $120 a year to, to, you know, even less than that. So I know that sometimes it's a dollar for three months. It's a dollar for six months. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that a whole lot of ways that you can take advantage of a big spur membership, but don't miss out on all the content content. Don't miss out on the camaraderie. You know, all the message board folks are great and there's Gamecock content 24 seven for you on the big spur. So if you're looking for more Gamecocks in your life, I highly, highly recommend you join the Big Spur. So the other the other thing I want to talk about really quick, and I, I can't spend too much time on this, but Carolina Rise. Um, Carolina Rise is a, a name image likeness collective that impacts all of Gamecock sports, um, especially especially college college football, college basketball, and college baseball. And I can't get into much detail here, but what I can tell you is that there are some gigantic things going on with NIL and how it relates to Gamecock athletics right now going on behind the scenes. If you have been on the fence about joining Carolina Rise to this point, now is the perfect time to join the 1801 Club. For $18.01 per month, you will help the Gamecocks do some extremely important things for our student-athletes in the very near future. You know, While larger and smaller monthly donations are greatly appreciated, uh, joining the 1801 club today will really, really help. Um, and with that said, the sooner the better. Um, like, like I mentioned just a moment ago, there are some major things that are happening that that Carolina Rise is is you know is contributing to and working towards and to to help our student athletes get the most out of their time at University of South Carolina and to help retain you know student athletes that we have the Ethan Petries of the world. I'm not saying Ethan's going anywhere. Don't take that the wrong way. I think Ethan's locked in as a Gamecock, and if he could stay four years, I think he would. But, you know, it's a competitive landscape out there, and Carolina Rise is is doing really, really, really good work in that NIL space to help the Gamecocks stay stay competitive in that landscape and to help to help keep players in the Gamecock uniform and, and give them opportunities for life, you know, not just while they're, while they're students at the University of South Carolina. But with that being said, let's get back to the main show and we'll talk about Gamecock baseball expectations year in and year out. So what I did, and like I told you going into last episode, I'm a highly analytical guy. I like to look at numbers. I like to look at statistics. I like to let the numbers tell a story. Um, The numbers are going to give you the raw facts and then you can fill in the gray areas with just things you know that are inherent to to sports or inherent to, you know, especially Gamecock athletics. You know, why has South Carolina only been to two super regionals or whatever it is in the past five years, you know, or five se- five seasons that there were super regionals? Well, you know all the gray area, but let, let's talk about something really quick. Since the year 2000, you know, beginning in the year 2000, there have been 49 teams by – 
Matt's advanced statistical research that have made the College World Series. So we're talking about 49 teams. So tops on that list is Texas. Texas Longhorns have made nine appearances since the year 2000 in the College World Series, and they've been they've won the whole thing one time. So 42% of the time, Texas gets to the College World Series. Next on that list is Florida. They had seven appearances from the year 2000 to, to, to 2020. Golly, I can't talk sometimes. They've had seven appearances from the year 2000 to the year 2022. Um, champions one time. So that's a clip of 31.8%. The Florida Gators are getting to Omaha. We do have six teams that have made six appearances since the year 2000. Those teams are Stanford, Cal State Fullerton, Arkansas, South Carolina, North Carolina, and LSU. Um, of that being said, LSU's won one championship. The Gamecocks have won two. Cal State Fullerton's won one. So, you know, looking here, you know, of those teams that, you know, of the eight teams that have consistently made the College World Series, there are one, two, three, four, five, six championships over a you know, 22-year period. So winning it all is tough, and I don't think you guys need me to tell you that. But you know, we also look at six teams that made five appearances, Miami, Oregon State, Florida State, Vanderbilt, TCU, and Arizona. So that's good for a 22% clip to make it to, to, make it to Omaha, and there's been you know, Miami's won one in, 20, in, two, in 2001, Oregon State's actually won three times. Florida State has never won. Uh, Vanderbilt has won two championships, and Arizona won one championship. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna continue to go down this list, you know, just for the teams that have made you know multiple appearances. But there have been four teams that have made four appearances, and six teams have made three appearances. All other teams in that 49 team sample have made it to Omaha two or less times. Okay, so. We've established that Omaha is tough to get to. So what about what about super regionals? So like, you know, you get to the you get to the super regionals and you know, what happens? So Florida State and Oregon State have won won their super regional seventy two point seven percent of the time since twenty twenty two. LSU and South Carolina are at sixty eight percent and sixty four percent respectfully. Um, Texas, Stanford, Cal State, Fullerton, Florida, Miami, they get there in that 50 to 59% range since two, the year 2000. Arkansas, Mississippi State, Vanderbilt, North Carolina, Louisville, and Rice get there 40 to 49% of the time. Texas A&M, Virginia, TCU, Clemson, Arizona State, 32, 36% of the time. And all other schools have won Super Regionals 22.7% or less of the time. So kind of just trying to break that down for you. I know it's a lot of math, but you know, for me off the cuff, I started thinking about, well, what are my expectations for Gamecock baseball? You know, keeping in mind, like we talked about this earlier, I'm a fan. And by, by definition, I'm a fanatic. I expect Gamecocks to win every game I watch. I mean, I, every game I watch, I go into believing that there's a chance that we win every game. My heart tells me we can win every game. So I believe it. Even when, even when my mind says differently, so I wanted to look at this and say, what are my fanatical expectations for Gamecock baseball? So here's what I came up with. I think the Gamecocks need to make the NCAA tournament 90% of the time. So that means 
nine out of 10 years, we're in the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, I think that that's fair. And this is just me going off my heart. I'm not necessarily even on my brain yet, but just my heart. I think the Gamecocks should host a regional 80% of the time. So if they're making it nine out of 10 years, I think seven out of 10 years, the Gamecocks should be a host. They should host a regional. I think the Gamecocks should win a regional 75% of the time. So that means six out of 10 years, we should be going to super regionals in my mind. And then, you know, lastly, I think that the Gamecocks should win a super regional somewhere in the 30% range every single time. So over a 10 year, 10 year period, that would, that would have the Gamecocks advancing to Omaha two to three times per decade. And, you know, with that being said, you, you hope you win at least one of them, if not more. But at the end of the day, there are 10 teams over the last 22 years that have made the College World Series over 50% of the time. So, I don't know. You know, like, where, where, do we, where do we put our mindset there? You know, where do the Gamecocks fall? The Gamecocks are fourth on that list. Um, with all that success being said, a lot of that can be attributed to Ray Tanner. You know, just like Florida right now, with their coach, I think that sometimes you just get a once-in-a-generational coach. I mean, think about Florida State all those years where they had their head coach there for 40 years. So sometimes you just get a once-in-a-generation coach. And for the Gamecocks, that was Ray Tanner. Ray Tanner went 738 and 316 as the head coach of South Carolina. And that was good for a win percentage of 70 of over or exactly 70% over 16 years as the head coach of Carolina. So what did Ray do? Ray made the regionals 14 times good for an 87.5% clip. So he made the tournament 87.5% of his seasons. So Ray did it 87.5%. I say the Gamecocks should do it 90%. So a little off there, but the numbers are close enough that, you know, I'm I'm okay with it. Um, Ray made the Super Regional 10 times. So 10 out of 16 years, he made the Super Regional. Um, that was good for a 62.5% clip, and I'm at 75%. So, you know, even looking at the greatest coach in South Carolina history, he went to the Super Regional 62.5% of the time. So even me as a fan, I'm at, in my head, I'm thinking we should go to the Super Regional 75% of the time. So maybe I'm off there. I don't know. Um, Ray Tanner went to the College World Series six times, and that was good for 37.5% of his seasons. He was in the College World Series. And my math that I shared earlier, I thought that the Gamecocks should make it to College World Series you know, 30% of the time when they make the NCAA tournament. So I'm okay with those numbers. Um, obviously, Ray Tanner won it all two times, good for 12.5% rate, and I'm at 10% where I think how often the Gamecocks should – should should win it all. So when I say ten percent, I'm talking about you know one out of ten years. So the question I had to ask myself is: Gamecock baseball boiled down to Ray Tanner. You know, did Ray Tanner put expectations at a point that no coach will ever be able to match or surpass them? And you know, after digging into the numbers, I don't I don't think so. I don't think so. And you know what? I would say, of course not. Ray Tanner had success, but the first edition of the College World Series was held in 1947. And outside of one season, which was the COVID year, has happened every year. So that's 74 College World Series. The Gamecocks have been to the College World Series 11 times. So good for 14.8% 
of College World Series, the Gamecocks have been there. I think that's the number we should shoot for. I think that, you know, if you're talking about 100 years, the Gamecocks should go to 14 College World Series. If you're talking about 10 years, the Gamecocks should go to at least one College World Series every decade. You know, and I asked myself, well, was it all Ray Tanner? Well, obviously, no. You know, five of our College World Series appearances, Ray Tanner was not our coach. I mean, you look at the history of South Carolina baseball, and that's why Ray Tanner came to South Carolina. He left his alma mater, NC State, to come be the head coach for the University of South Carolina. You know, going a little bit deeper, over 125 years of South Carolina baseball, the Gamecocks have won 62.6% of their games. Not only that, the Gamecocks have the 19th most wins in college baseball history coming into this season. This is a team that not only historically wins at a top 20 rate in the country, but since the year 2000 has been a top 8 to 10 team in the rankings, you know, traditionally over the past two plus decades. And again, you know, mostly under Ray Tanner. However, I don't think that should take away from the big picture, which is that the Gamecocks are a blue blood of college baseball. And since Ray Tanner left his perch in the dugout, the Gamecocks have still made four super regionals over two different coaches and have zero trips to Omaha to show for it. And if you look at it, Ray Tanner stepped down and stepped, well, he stepped up to athletic director in 20, in 2012. So, you know, we're talking about 10 seasons there where the Gamecocks made four super regionals and didn't get to Omaha. Inside that decade or 10, 10 season stretch, there should have been one trip to Omaha there. Now, why it didn't happen, that's the gray area I talk about. You know, you look back and you know, the Gamecocks were one win, one win away from Omaha at least one time I can remember. You know, the Gamecocks have had chances to get there. Um, and, and that's simply not good enough for this program, and it's not good enough for this fan base. The Gamecocks need to consistently be a team that is in the national seed hunt, and a top eight, top eight seed hunt, and should be hosting regionals pretty much on an annual basis. You know, as far as hosting a super regional, you're going to have those years where you're a top eight seed. You're going to have those years where you're, you know, you're a nine to sixteen seed. But you know, the team that's ranked ahead of you that you're paired with loses, and you host a super regional. But on the Gamecocks' own merit, they should be hosting four super regionals a decade. At, you know, around that for me. So. The Gamecocks should have high expectations each and every year. And I'm telling you guys to keep your expectations high. Let's see what happens next year. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but there's enough returning talent on this team and, and trusting some folks that I've spoke to. There's going to be a, an influx of transfer, transfer portal players who are going to provide a boost to, the, to this roster. And the core is there, and now they're just filling in some pieces. We'll see what happens on the pitching mound, but... You know, keep your expectations high. As Ray Tanner used to say, you know, when you, you got to win your midweek games, you have to win your series at home, and you can't get swept on the road. So that's what Coach Kingston and next year's Gamecocks are tasked with. I, I think that the potential is there to be another top 16 seed. Hopefully, we get to that top eight seed range, and let's make Founders Park electric again. Let's bring that excitement back to the ballpark. Let's let's carry over. The, the highs of this season into next year and 
and we'll see what happens. I mean, Ethan Petrie will be on a lot of first-team All-American preseason lists, maybe some National Player of the Year, SEC Player of the Year list. Cole Messina comes back, and he really did a great job managing the pitching staff. You know, you got some key players that are going to grow up, you know, get a little bit more seasoning, a little more strength and conditioning under their belt. And and I, I think the future is bright in Columbia. So I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on this. You know, get back to me on the message board. You know, send me an email. Um, thank you for listening. And just a reminder, you can touch base with me at late night gamecock show at gmail.com or you can reach me on the Big Spur message board where my username is Matt Odom. I hope you guys have a great rest of the evening and I will talk to you Thursday.